How are you doing? Are you winning? I mean, today was a pretty good day. Sunny out. You know, no major injuries at the park that I'm aware of. Good day. Let me show you exactly what I mean. Um, a few weeks ago, I was helping my wife by taking our oldest daughter, Rosie, out to run some errands. So that's, that's worth about two points, right? Helping out the wife, having some fun, building some memories. During one stop, I had a few things to organize in the car, so I thought, you know what? I'll help Rosie not be bored. I'll give her a snack. I'll put on a little music. Um, and uh, that's another point. So I turned the key about halfway in, and we're rocking out while I'm organizing some stuff. Rocking out, by the way, with your, uh, your children is worth at least three points. And uh, then I realized that those few minutes of rocking out with uh, with uh, Rosie would use just enough battery power to prevent me from starting my car. <laughs> so I have a dead car battery in a Walmart parking lot. That is minus 5,000 points. <laughs> I'm losing. And then I look around, and this is the worst part, I look around and I'm seeing some parents and they're kind of arguing with their kids or I'm seeing husbands and wives kind of bickering as they're coming in and out of the store and then they get into their cars with their perfectly functioning car batteries and they drive off. You guys know what I'm talking about? We love keeping score. Either it's our own individual score or it becomes competitive. Every fight you have, every silent treatment or every grudge you have, or every angry word that you speak or think when you're in traffic or on the Internet says, you owe me. Plus one for me. This afternoon I'd like to show you that this horizontal scorekeeping that we do with people around us every day is actually based on an incorrect vertical understanding of who God is. So it's really our vertical relationship with God that drives our horizontal relationship with people. And we have seen the ugly side of that in the book of Job. Job's friends are harsh to Job. And they're getting worse every chapter. They have considered the unearned death of Job's children and the loss of all of his property and the slow degradation of his body to a skin disease, and they have concluded this. Job, you must have earned this. You are wicked, and God is not happy. They have kept score, unfairly, mind you, and Job is losing. And as we're learning, and we're going to learn more, they do this because they don't understand who God is. But as we're learning, and we're going to learn more today, Job's confidence is getting stronger and stronger in the midst of these so-called friends because he is becoming more and more established with a correct understanding of who God is. And so my hope is that your future will be the same as Job's is here. That you will know who God is, and in doing so, no matter what life throws at you, 
you will not stop loving people. We're going to start in chapter 20. This is your first point in your outline. Winners love keeping score. As I mentioned, it's page 275 in your church Bible. Job chapter 20. This is Zophar's friend, or Job's friend Zophar. Then Zophar the Namathite answered and said, Therefore my thoughts answer me because of my haste within me. I hear censure that insults me, and out of my understanding a spirit answers me. Do you not know this from old since man was placed on earth, that the exalting of the wicked is short, and the joy of the godless but for a moment? Though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. And those who have seen him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. The eye that saw him will see him no more, nor will his place any more behold him. His children will seek the favor of the poor, and his hands will give back his wealth. His bones are full of his youthful vigor, but they will lie down with him in the dust. Though evil is sweet in his mouth, though he hides it under his tongue, though he is loath to let it go and he holds it in his mouth, yet his food is turned in his stomach. It is the venom of cobras within him. He swallows down riches, vomits them up again. God casts them out of his belly. He will suck the poison of cobras. The tongue of a viper will kill him. He will not look upon the rivers, the streams flowing with honey and curds. He will give back the fruit of his toil, and he will not swallow it down. From the profit of his trading, he will get no enjoyment, for he has crushed and abandoned the poor. He has seized a house that he did not build. Because he knew no contentment in his belly, he will not let anything in which he delights escape him. There was nothing left after he had eaten. Therefore, his prosperity will not endure. In the fullness of his sufficiency, he will be in distress. The hand of everyone in misery will come against him to fill his belly to the full. God will send his burning anger against him and rain it upon him into his body. He will flee from an iron weapon. A bronze arrow will strike him through. It is drawn forth, comes out of his body. The glittering point comes out of his gallbladder. Terrors come upon him. Utter darkness is laid up for his treasures. A fire not fanned will devour him. What is left in his tent will be consumed. The heavens will reveal his iniquity, and the earth will rise up against him. The possessions of his house will be carried away, dragged off in the day of God's wrath. This is the wicked man's portion from God, the heritage decreed for him by God. Wow. Do you see what Zophar says in the first three verses? He says, I hear censure that insults me. Censure basically means sort of um, unjust whining, you might even say. He is insulted by what Job has just said. Let me underline what that actually means. Job, who has just lost everything, as we know, he has just been lifted up with a huge truth about God at the end of the last chapter. Do you remember it? Last chapter he said, For I know that my Redeemer lives. 
And as Job's body continues to fall apart, and the memories of his family get farther and farther and farther away, Job goes up in chapter 19 to say, I know that my Redeemer lives, and Zophar says here, Your words are disgusting to me. I'm insulted by them. How dare you claim to have hope? You're fading away to nothing. Zophar goes on with two condemnations for wicked people like Job, he says. These claims are slanderous. There's no basis in reality, and they describe a complete annihilation. Let's look over these verses. They're hard to read. Verse 5, the exulting and joy of the wicked is short. Job, your best days are over. The stuff that you're experiencing right now, this is actually the good life. It's only going to get worse from here. Verse 7, wicked people will vanish from memory. People will say, where are they? Job, you're not going to have a legacy. Verses 9 and 10, and this carries over, says Zophar, to the children of the wicked. Anybody that descends from him will be penniless, seeking the favor of the poor. Verse 11, his body will fall, will fall apart, his vigor will lie down with his body. Verse 15, he swallows down riches and vomits them up again and God casts them out of his belly. Verse 17, he won't even look upon the rivers for healing. In other words, what Zophar is saying is, Job, there's healing right in front of you, but you are so lost that you can't even see it. You don't even want to go to it because you love the taste of evil so much. Verse 19, Then Zophar insinuates that Job has crushed and abandoned the poor and has seized the house that he will... He is not built. Zophar is insinuating that Job is a thief, but he provides no evidence. And the harshest words are last. According to Zophar, all of this is from God. Verse 23, God mercilessly fills the wicked person's belly with poison and then just destroys him. Can you picture the God that Zophar is describing. Some of you might have grown up with an idea that's who God is. Some of you are just still trying to shake that. Um, to sum it up, Zophar's God is not a God of mercy. Job has just said, I know that my Redeemer lives. And here's what Zophar is saying. God is not a Redeemer. God is the great destroyer, and he's coming for you. Can you imagine what Zophar's scorecard looks like? If he had one? He is so righteous, and he is so holy, and he has racked up so many points, and Job is so far behind. And how does Zophar handle his victory? To be honest... He's just stopping Job the loser right down into hell. That's what he's doing. Why is Zophar so mercilessless? Why, why, why does he hate mercy? 
Zophar hates mercy because he believes God hates mercy. That's it. It's just a horizontal execution of what he believes about God vertically. What I mean by that is this. If you want to know what somebody believes about God, watch how they treat people. Especially the people who are hurting and the people who are lost. Just watch them as they interact with their children. Watch them as they talk to the waitress at the, at the restaurant. Watch them as they answer the phone and it's that customer service guy. Watch what happens when their car battery runs out in a Walmart parking lot. Zophar hates mercy. And so it just bends outward into how he treats people. But you know what's funny? The good life goes on for Zophar and his friends, and it's exhausting how little justice there seems to be here. But ironically, that's actually going to be Job's defense in the next chapter. He's going to use Zophar's own argument against him. Let me read chapter 21. Then Job answered and said, Keep listening to my words, and let this be your comfort. Bear with me, and I will speak. And after I have spoken, mock on. As for me, is my complaint against man? Why should I not be impatient? Look at me, and be appalled, and lay your hand over your mouth. When I remember, I am dismayed, and shuddering seizes my flesh. Why do the wicked flee? Why do they live? Why do they reach old age and grow mighty in power? Their offspring are established in their presence, and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear, and no rod of God is upon them. Their bull breeds without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre and rejoice to the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace they go, they go down to Sheol or death. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what, what profit do we get if we pray to him? Behold, is not their prosperity in their hand? The counsel of the wicked is far from me. How often is it that the lamp of the wicked is put out, that their calamity comes upon them, that God distributes pains in his anger, that they are like straw before the wind and like chaff that the storm carries away? You say God stores up the iniquity for their children. Let him pay it out to them that they may know it. Let their own eyes see their destruction and let them drink the wrath of the Almighty. For what do they care for their houses after them when the number of their months is cut off? Will any teach God knowledge seeing that he judges those who are on high? One dies in his full vigor being wholly at ease and secure his pails full of milk and the marrow of his bones moist Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Behold, I know your thoughts and your schemes to wrong me. For you say, where is the house of the prince? Where is the tent in which the wicked lived? <coughs> Have you not asked those who travel the roads? Do you not accept their testimony that the evil man is spared in the day of calamity? that he is rescued in the day of wrath, who declares his way to his face, 
And who repays him for what he has done? When he is carried over to the grave, watch is kept over his tomb. The clouds of the valley are sweet to him. All mankind follows after him. And those who go before him are innumerable. How then will you comfort me with empty nothings? There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Job, Job opens up here by explaining that the game is rigged and nobody wins. And he says in verse 4 that my complaint isn't with you to his friends, but yet so far with no proof has made accusations, so Job addresses them. Zophar has spoken about the wicked being annihilated by, jo- by God, and so Job's defense is, look around though, and you won't find that. You won't find a God sovereign over things like that. In verses 7 through 22, and I'm just going to breeze over this, Job says that the wicked person isn't destroyed, they stay rich, and they live well, and they hand over things to their children. And you know what? That's still true, right? We see that. How many times do you see rich people make terrible decisions and they stay right on being rich? Job knows this, so he rebukes all three of his friends in verse 22. He says, Will any teach God knowledge? In other words, Zophar, God isn't doing what you're saying. He does. Do you have to send him a memo or something? And he follows that up with a huge point. Let me just reread verses 23 through 26. One dies in his full vigor, being holy and easy and secure, his pails full of milk, and the marrow of his, of his bones moist. Another dies in bitterness of soul, never having tasted of prosperity. They lie down alike in the dust, and the worms cover them. Here's the point. Sometimes the rich die fat and happy. Sometimes the poor die with nothing, but they die together. Nobody is a winner. I think in a way, Job is sticking his finger in Zophar's chest and saying, I'm not winning, but neither are you. Everybody gets annihilated. Job's not buying what Zophar is selling, so he cuts right to the chase in verse 34. Your words are empty nothings. There is nothing left of your answers but falsehood. Friends, please don't make the mistake of calling Job temperamental here. This is love too. Looking at someone who has twisted their idea of God's will and judgment so much that it leads them to hate people. They have zero compassion. They don't fear God, but they water God down into a selfish, marketable God that they keep in their back pocket, and that tastes good, but it's poison. 
and their words are worthless, and so they don't even deserve to speak. Yet here are three of them, and they're perfectly healthy, and they're assaulting Job while believing in a karma worldview disguised as holiness, and yet they will go home to their houses and their families and their children, and Job looks like he's going to die with nothing in a trash heap. And all of this makes verse 4 so striking. Guys, remember verse 4? Job's complaint. He says, is it with you? Job's complaint is not against his friends. It's ultimately against God because ultimately all this injustice is being allowed by God and Job doesn't get that. I mean, he gets it, but he doesn't get it. Do you know what I mean? He believes it, but it's just so hard. God is not providing the justice that Job longs for. But look, Job does not call God false. Job calls his friends false. That's righteousness. Job is wrestling with God, but he's not cursing God. He trusts God, even though the game is rigged, And nothing seems fair. And all Job is leaning on is this. God is God, and I am not. That's it. He doesn't have to get life because he gets God. And what really kills me is that Job isn't saying this because his body has gotten any better. He's not saying this because he's gotten any of his kids back or his property back. He is still in the midst of suffering, and there is no promise of earthly compensation. Yet his harsh words, deservedly harsh, are aimed right where they should be. Right at the sin that his friends are committing against God and and against him. He knows the game is rigged, and he knows that nobody wins. But God is still God, And Job is still waiting for his Redeemer. And the good news is this, is that the Redeemer that Job has been anticipating is the Redeemer that you and I have seen. And it's both the best news and the least fair thing that life will ever offer you. That's point three. It's the good news. The gospel ends the crooked game. Let me go back to that scorecard imagery for a few minutes. And let's measure our scorecard against God. If God is holy, which he is, and demands perfection, which he does, then our scorecard is one that no one measures up to. But here's where Zophar's theology is crushed. Because God mercifully sent Jesus, who does not get one mark against him. Yet, he takes all of the marks against us onto him, settling our account and destroying the scorecard. All I mean by that is that the gospel is not fair and we need that. And this is fatal to the carnal worldview. 
Because karma and things like it, they give the illusion. Scorekeeping gives the illusion of control, but it's based on our selfish perceptions of reality. They make us sort of the, 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 the referee and the player at once. And this is so twisted that it can lead people to believe that the gospel is actually bad news. Here's what I mean. Because we either think our score is too high and we're winning and we don't need help, which goes against the gospel, or our scorecard is so low that we're a lost cause, which goes against the gospel. Either way, though, karma doesn't fear God. But the gospel breaks the nature of karma. Pastor Tulian Chavijan puts it this way, The good news of the gospel is not that good people get good stuff. It's not that life is cyclical. It's not that what goes around comes around. Rather, it's the bad that get the best. And the worst inherit the earth. And the 